Good morning, Grace Bible Church. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Stephen Watson. If you don't know me, I'm an assistant pastor here. Uh, pastor Dave is up in North Dakota um, doing a camp up there, so we need to make sure we remember him in our prayers. Uh, if you would, please turn to the letter of Romans. If you're using one of the Bibles in your, in your pews there, it's on page 939. Uh, while you're doing that, let's, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer right quick. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this day that you have given us. And Lord, we just want to lift up uh, those who are here this morning who are, who are brokenhearted, who are weary, who are tired, Lord, and just need encouragement and strengthening, Lord, in their life and in their faith and in their walk. We pray, Lord, that that is received today uh, just through the ministry of, of, of this body. Father, we pray for, for Dave as he's up in, in North Dakota, that you would be with him as he preaches his messages up there, that you bring him home safely. And Lord, we do pray for every other Jesus-loving, God-glorifying, Bible-believing church here in Colleen as pastors are, are stepping into their pulpits across the city. We just pray, Lord, uh, that, that your truth goes out, that, that it is received, and that your spirit will do its work in the hearts of your people. Lord, we, we pray that in faith. And Father, I pray that in this sermon that, that we're about to have right here in this room, in this building, uh, I pray, Lord, that it, it will be received uh, in the intent that it's given to strengthen, to encourage, O oh Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning we are in our series in Romans. Uh, Dave will pick back up next week in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, today, we, we are going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through uh, 17. So we will have a little bit of overlap in these next two weeks. Uh, the, the, the primary thrust and theme of this morning's sermon is, is on the idea and the concept of the church. Now, when we read these verses, you're going to say, well, the word church isn't mentioned in any of these verses, but... I make the argument that, that Paul is, is writing to the church and he is describing in these verses some elements of what I would consider a, a gospel-rich church. And so we're going to look at these elements of a gospel-rich church. Before we go there, I think it's important for us to define what I mean when I say the word church. Uh, in the Greek, the word for church is ekklesia. It, it literally means the called out ones, those that are holy to God. Um, oftentimes, it's translated with the words assembly or, or congregation. We, we use it to describe with the word church. Uh, so it's important to realize that a church is not a physical address. A, a church is not a, a, well, we're not mortar here. We are corrugated tin. You know, that, that is not a church. But a church is the people of God, regardless of, of where they meet. In fact, when we read the Bible, the early church oftentimes met in homes. Uh, in the first century, whenever Christianity was, was illegal and persecuted, they oftentimes would go to the catacombs underneath the streets of Rome. And throughout the centuries, and even today, churches meet outside under trees, in tents, in homes, uh, and in buildings like ours as well. So these, these physical locations aren't the church but rather the saints of God gathering together, assembling together for the purpose of worship of their God and Creator and Savior, 
That is what a church is. Uh, I think a good example is this, is in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a baptism out at Brick and Patty Brown's house. They live out on Patty Hamilton Road. It's beautiful, very scenic. There's a nice creek going out there. It's where we do our baptisms. Uh, but that particular Sunday, we're also gathering to do our entire church service out there. Where we'll sing, and there'll be the word proclaimed. We're going to have a picnic, so we're going to be breaking bread. We're going to be doing some baptisms, uh, just all around a, a, a great time. But if you say, all right, on that particular Sunday evening, I'm going to go to Grace Bible Church, well, you shouldn't show up at this building. Because Grace Bible Church at that moment isn't going to be here. Grace Bible Church is going to be out on Patty Hamilton Road, worshiping under the trees by the creek. Uh, so, so the church is, is less a building. It's not a building. And it is the people of God. Uh, and, and I say this because there is a lot of animosity against the church. There's been lots of painful experiences in the church. Um, I've been in church all my life, and, and I can tell you not all my experiences in church have been blissful. I, I love the church dearly and deeply, but not all my experiences have been blissful. Uh, a lot of hard things has happened there, but I still, I still love the church. I love the bride of Christ. Um, but I, I think oftentimes people say, well, I, I'm not all into the organized religion and I can love Jesus, and I can follow Jesus without an organized church. But the truth of the matter is, is anytime you have people gathering together on a regular basis, whether it's in a home or it's in a building like this, people are going to organize. And when people oftentimes organize, they turn into organizations. Um, so so I, I want to encourage you not to be so hurt by past experiences that you throw the baby out with the bathwater. There, there is a, a song that I, I really like by this artist named Derek Webb. Um, he's kind of dark and gloomy, and so I, I don't know if that's why I like him, but, but he's got some great stuff out there. Um, one of his songs is titled The Church, and he is singing it in the voice of Jesus. And, and the chorus goes something along these lines. It says, you cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love my church. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love my church. We cannot forget that whenever Jesus describes the church and whenever Paul describes the church in the Bible, in the New Testament, they use the words of marriage, that Christ himself is preparing for himself a bride, and the bride of Christ is the church. Think of it this way. Let's say you come up to me and you say, Stephen, man, I, I love you, but that wife of yours. Let, let's make this more realistic. Let's say you walk up to my wife. And you say, Lindsay, I love you, but that husband of yours is so stubborn and pig-headed. I don't know how you do it. How, how's that conversation going to go? Uh, I can guarantee you, because I've married me a great woman, that she's not going to go for it. 
Why? Because we are husband and wife. We've been united in one flesh. We are one body. And the Bible, time and time again, says that marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. Is a church oftentimes broken? Can it be ugly? Can it be hard? Yes, it can. But even in the midst of all that, we cannot forget that the church is the bride of Christ. I just can't forget that story when Peter was on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house and all these unclean animals were coming down and, and there was this voice saying, take and eat. And Peter kept saying, I, I'm not going to eat anything that is unclean. And then the final voice that was spoken said, do not call what I have called clean and good unclean. God has made for himself a bride in Christ that he died for, that he bled for, that he has and is redeeming. And our attitude towards that bride ought to be one of reverence, ought to be one of love, ought to be one of of humility because we get to be a part of it. And gratitude. So, man, my my heart today, I'm going to be talking about the church. My heart today is one of, of pastoral love towards you. I don't want you to think, man, Stephen's just beating that old legalistic drum about the church. I, I don't want you to receive it that way because I know it can be heard that way. But when I speak these words out of Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, I want you to receive them in the heart that I am trying to speak them in. One of love and concern for your well-being. That what I want to see and what our elders want to see at this church is, is a people of God coming together in love and in unity, showing the world the goodness of our God through the love we have for one another. So that what we want to do as... Uh, we haven't even read the text yet. Whew. I can't go over first service. Second service, I can go all day, right? Uh, Neil in the children's ministry is back there saying, oh no. All right. So let's go ahead and, and read our text this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, a gospel-rich church that I think Paul is writing today, we see four different elements, I think, of of a gospel-rich church in these first few verses of Romans. The first is that a gospel-rich church has members who are known and who bear fruit. Members who are known. I think this is important because in the first opening verses of of Romans, he says, I am writing to, to the saints who are in Rome. Paul had particular people in particular uh, places where these churches congregated in mind. How do I know this? It's because whenever Paul finished his letter and he gave it to Phoebe and said, Phoebe, deliver this to the church in Rome, she, she didn't cross the Rome city limits and say, where do I take this? Even though he said to the saints in Rome, there were particular people he had in mind. Take it to the, to the house where the church meets. This is their leader and they would take the letter there, and it would be read aloud. And they would read and think, man, this is great. This is encouraging. We need to encourage the other churches that meet in Rome. And so let's, let's send this over to, to Marcus's house. And they would run the letter over to Marcus's house, and they would open up Paul's letter, and they would read the letter. But it was written to, to known believers. And I think that is so important because today, when we talk about being a part of a church or a member of a church, one of the things that we need to be is we need to be known. It is so easy to walk into a building this size. We're spread across over one large building and a building over here and a building over there. It's so easy to walk into a building this size and have no personal engagement. I, the early churches that I, that I was a part of... Um, I never had that problem. In fact, the first church that I pastored, uh, our low attendance day, I remember we had eight people in the service. Uh, so that, that was low attendance Sunday, but, you know, averages 20 to 30 people there. And we have small groups that are that size. But when you're in a church that size, it's so much easier to know people and to be known. Because I would stand up there behind the pulpit, and I said, well, Man, Mr. Oliver always sits right over there. Mr. Oliver's not there today. Does anyone know where Mr. Oliver is? Is he doing all right? Oh, yeah, he, he's, he's doing fine, but this happened, and so he had to be out today. Okay, well, that's where he is. And what about Miss Mathis? You know, she's living on her own. She's a widow lady. Is, is, is she all right? Well, yeah, man, let's go over there to her house and check in on her. So when you're in a church of, of 20 or 30 people, there's no hiding. Because uh, for some reason, even if you're in church of this size of a building and you have 20 people, they sit like all apart. There's something about humans that do that, I guess. Um, but that, that's hard in a church like ours. It's so easy to come in here and not be known. I think that's one of the reasons why we have small groups. Because in a small group, these groups that range from from, goodness, eight people to 20, 30 people in our largest group, you can be known. It's harder to hide in a group like that. If you're missing, it's noticed. If you have a hurt look on your face or you're acting differently, it's noticed, and people can inquire about you, and you can do the same for other people. There's another reason why we actually ask you to serve in the church. Uh, 
you know, when we say, man, we need nursery workers, that's not just because, like, we're wanting some free labor to help out in the nursery. But if you are unknown in the church, one of the ways to become known, to make connections, is through serving in the church. And it serves a larger purpose of, 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 of the gospel proclamation here, but it's a way to become known. You meet the person you're working with. You meet the leaders of that ministry. And it's another way of becoming known in the church. We have to fight this idea uh, of being anonymous, of being unknown. And when we think about it, if we say that the church is a group of people coming together, congregating and assembling, if that's what a church is, and we come into that and we leave that without ever engaging a person, are we really doing church? It's a question we have to ask. Man, if church is a building, all you've got to do is show up. I've been to church. But like we said, the church isn't a building. The church is a people. And to do church is to know and be known by other people. So a, a gospel-rich church is one where you have known members who know one another and then also that they are bearing fruit. This, this is one of those phrases I think sometimes, if you've been a Christian a long time, you're like, oh yeah, I'll bear fruit. I know what that means. However, if you're not a Christian or you're new to the faith, you hear that, that phrase, bear fruit, and you think, what in the world are they talking about? Uh, so if that is you, man, we're, we're all learning all the time. Uh, what it means to bear fruit, it, it comes from two different places. One, it comes from the words of Jesus who said, uh, you, shall, you shall know a tree by its fruit. Good trees give b- good fruit. Bad trees give bad fruit. Talking about our heart, talking about our actions. Also comes from Paul's writing in Galatians, where he says that uh, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you, and you have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, I left one out, didn't I? Faithfulness. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> but and it's sad because the only reason I can really say those out loud is because of a children's song that they sing next door. Uh, if you've got a kid over there, ask them about the fruit of the spirit song. Get them to sing it to you. Um, but but when we talk about a Christian bearing fruit, that's essentially what we're saying: that the spirit of God is in you, and there is a transforming power in your life. That you behave differently. That your actions are changing. That your heart has been changed. In a gospel-rich church, what we see is transformation taking in people's lives. That transformation, if this discourages, I, I, I did the math the other day when I was talking with my kids, and, and it's like, man, I, I've been a Christian for, for 30 years. Uh, and I thought, man, I, I can't, can't be that long. I'm not that old. Uh, but apparently I am. But, but it's one of those things where if, if I were just to look at my life right now, it's so easy for me to get discouraged in where I am with my walk. Man, I can still be so unfaithful. I can be, be so negative. I can complain about everything. I can be argumentative. I can be difficult. And I can just list my sins and think, oh, what effect has Christ had on my life? But if I talk with someone, if I'm known by someone else who I've been walking with for a while, they can be like, oh, Stephen, you're not near as bad as you used to be. And, and that's the good news of the gospel. If the Spirit of God is in us, we are going to be transformed. 
And we're going to be transformed until we see Jesus and we're made perfectly like him. But we're still always going to be struggling with that sin. One of the benefits of being known is that, is that someone can look at your fruit. They can look at your heart. They can look at your actions over the course of many years. And they can encourage you and strengthen you saying, no, I see Christ at work in your life. So in a gospel-rich church, we have known members who are, who are bearing fruit. All right, the, thing, the next thing we see is in verses 9 through 10. Let's go ahead and read those again, refresh our memories. It says in verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul's desire, one of the things that he wanted, is he wanted to visit this church in Rome. I mean, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? But he had never been to the capital city of the Gentiles. This was not a church that Paul had founded. It was laid on somebody else's foundation, someone else's work. But yet he still had this this longing to visit the church. He still had this affinity with the church. I think that shows us this truth that if in a gospel-rich church, there is, there is a unity with believers of, of like faith. Paul says in Ephesians that we have one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit who is in all and working in all. That we have things that unite us with other Christians across our city and around the world. And in a gospel-rich church, that affinity can be seen. I, I want to take a moment to, to brag on Dave since he's not here. Um, a few months ago, I heard him up here in this pulpit say something along this, these lines. You know, it's getting a bit full in here. And there are about four or five other churches in town that we have close affinity with, that we have a like faith with. Uh, maybe you should go and check them out. I was kind of shocked. <laughs> Why? Why is that so rare? Why is that so unheard of? Because oftentimes what, ch- what, what churches do is they don't view other churches as, as one that they have affinity with, but they view other churches as competitors, that we're all going out there trying to, to get a hold of these few Christians that are out there and bring them in so we can have the biggest show in town. But in a gospel-rich church, what you're concerned about is not is not the size of your budget, is not the, the size of, of, of your membership or the attendance to your services, but at the larger message of, is the gospel being proclaimed? Is his work being done? And as long as that is going on, we can, we can rejoice. I think we also, I think practical application for us on this is that we need to be aware of what's going on in the world. Paul had not visited Rome yet. He had not spoken to that church yet. But he knew about the church. He took the time to talk with Phoebe, with Priscilla, with Aquila, saying, man, what's going on in Rome? He had an interest there where he wanted to learn about them. I encourage you to do the same thing with the church in, in our world. It helps us to pray for them in ways that are, that are real. Uh, in fact, w- one of the ways you can do this is, is to cross our church in the foyer and the ch- kids check in and the back building. We have some of our global outreach partners who are, who are posted up on the walls. Uh, and it has their name, where they're serving, and a few different prayer requests. Uh, I know it's so easy to walk past a, a bulletin board and not look at it, 
But I, I encourage you to, to slow down when you pass those and say, all right, where's this missionary? Where's this global outreach partner serving and how can I pray for them? And offer up a prayer at that moment. Take a, take a picture with your phone and set it up as a reminder to pop up once a day to, play, to, to pray for the global church. I can tell you that our, our, we have some great partners that we support. If, if you give uh, in the offering box, 10% of what you give goes directly into the mission field to support these people. Uh, and I can tell you that they're doing great work, that God is being glorified, that I, I get the, the great pleasure to talk with these guys and to Skype with them, and it's so easy on the technology we have today to be in communication with them. And the stories that I am getting back are so encouraging. But if you want to, to be connected with them, one of the good ways to do that is through the prayer. Another way is to support them individually. Um, I talked with four recently. Only one of the four is fully funded right now. Uh, the other three are like, man, yeah, we're having a baby, so we have increases. Uh, two are the other saying, man, our expenses have gone up and our giving has gone down. So th- there are needs out there in the global church, and we need to have a longing for them and their success, and we need to have an affinity with them as well. The gospel-rich church is united with other believers of like faith. The third thing we see is in verses 11 through 15. Let's, Let's read those again. Paul says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far has been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's desire to visit the Roman church was twofold. He wanted to strengthen and he wanted to encourage. God had given Paul gifts of preaching and teaching, and he wanted to take those gifts with him to Rome in order to encourage and strengthen the church there at Rome. He wanted those believers who have faith in Jesus to be built up, and he wanted to preach the gospel to those who have yet to repent and believe so that they could join the bride of Christ. But notice what he says. He says, he says this is not just one-sided. This is not just me wanting to preach to you, but I also want you to be able to encourage and, and to, to strengthen me. Man, what a difference would it make in our church body if everyone who came through our doors said, I'm coming not to sing songs and not to listen to a sermon, but I'm also coming to encourage, to strengthen. As I said, it's so easy to come in those doors and not be known. But what if, what if we took it a different direction and said, I'm going to come through those doors and I'm going to encourage and I'm going to strengthen and I'm going to go to the, some of the people that I know. I want to ask them how they're doing. Yet we might even take the time right then and there. And this, this might sound out there, but believe me, it'll be appreciated. If you just take the time right there to pray together. So, man, let's, let's just go to learn that right now. Man, what a beautiful picture that would be, of all of us coming together week after week to encourage, to strengthen one another, that we all might be built up in Christ. 
There's a great verse on this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Love this verse in Hebrews, encouraging us to hold fast to the confession of our hope. He says, whenever you meet together, consider how you can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. This is, this is something that, that the author of Hebrews is describing that is happening amongst the people of God and not just from a, a pastor or a teacher to, to a congregation, that there is mutual encouragement, mutual strengthening, mutual stirring one another towards love and good deeds. But listen what it's dependent upon. When we go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, considering how to stir one another on towards love and good deeds. There's there's a phrase just after that that those things are dependent upon. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a phrase in there that I think is somewhat hard to preach on, but we're going to do it anyways. And it's on this habit of meeting together. When we read the New Testament, the disciples and the church met together daily to worship God for that strength, for that encouragement. Uh, Throughout the years, it was very common to meet multiple times during a week. Some of you can probably remember from your own childhood and past experiences. Uh, Man, I, I know growing up, I was in church for Sunday school and then Sunday morning service and then Wednesday evening service. Uh, Sunday evening service. Um, then we'd have these things called revivals. Anyone know what, know what I'm talking about there? Where they'd be like, all right, it's all day long for a week type of thing. Um, and I remember my parents saying, yeah, we used to do more when we were growing up. We had these, these uh, discipleship classes that were separate on Sunday evenings as well. Um, but over the course of time, culture has changed. Uh, some churches still do this way. We, we don't. Uh, we, we have small groups. We have Sunday morning or Sunday services. Uh, but the amount of times that we meet together and gather together has decreased. I think it's very cultural that this has happened. And now, whereas it used to be measured in the statistics as do you attend church weekly, that has now has a different trajectory and it's, not, it's no longer do you go to church weekly, but do you go to church monthly. And a regular church attender is someone who doesn't go every week, but that might go once a month. Uh, I want you to receive this, once again, in the heart that it's given, in my love for you. That's not what the author of Hebrew has said. He said, don't get out of the habit of meeting together. I think what he is trying to communicate there is there ought to be a longing to meet with a church, an excitement 
for gathering together with the church and that it ought to be a regular occurrence that is a part of our week. For example, I think if we are still waking up on Sunday morning and we have to make the decision whether or not we're going to church that day or not, that might be a sign that we're out of the habit of church. I know some of you are new to the faith. This whole idea of church is, is foreign to you. Uh, some of you might be struggling in the faith, and, and, and this, this, like I said, church might be a new thing for you. Man, I want to encourage you for being here at all. I think that's great. But I also want to encourage you to be faithful in attendance. That coming together one day a week is not too much to ask. That it is an encouragement way to be strengthened and encouraged in the faith. Why? Why is it so important? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says at the end of this passage. Don't get out of the habit. Don't neglect to meet with one another, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. And the last phrase of this verse says, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We used to live in a culture that we could call Christendom, where everything about Western civilization was based on the authority of Scripture and Christian doctrine. Our morals were based out of Scripture and Christian doctrine. You always hear people talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic. That's what Western civilization was built upon. And even if you weren't a Christian, you still had some concept of right or wrong, that was based on Christian ethic. You still had some concept of, of, of morals that was based upon the Bible. But that day is changing, for better or for worse. I don't, I don't know yet, but I know that day is changing. And our culture, our ethic, our morals is no longer based out of Scripture, but out of a completely different humanistic, materialistic, worldview the day of having it pretty easy and being a Christian that being a Christian actually helped you in life as far as business and associations that day is gone and past and the day of having to to stand for your faith in opposition is now quickly approaching let's look at that last aspect of of a gospel-rich church. Paul says in verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What did Paul have to say with such a declarative statement? He had to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this might sound simplistic, but let's, let's think about this. Would Paul have had to say that with such a declarative statement if everybody liked the gospel? Like if Paul stood up and said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and people looked at him and said, well, of course you're not. That would be silly to be ashamed of the gospel. 
I, the only reason Paul had to say with such a declarative statement that he is not ashamed of the gospel is because he lived in a culture that was against the gospel and that looked at Paul and said that you ought to have shame for what you believe. You, Paul, ought to be ashamed of your gospel because you preach that God became a man, that a spiritual became physical. You, Paul, ought to be ashamed of the gospel because you say God showed weakness and dying on a cross. You, Paul, ought to have shame because you say that God died and that you believe in this resurrection. There's a reason why the gospel that Paul preached was considered to be a stumbling block. People looked at it and scoffed at it and heaped shame upon it. And it was in that culture that Paul was able to stand and not be silent and say, I am not ashamed of this gospel. I think you and I are going to live in a similar culture, a similar context, uh, where shame is going to be attached to your faith. They will say, you're a Christian, you preach a gospel shame, because it's so unreasonable to believe in that Bible you believe in. You believe and preach the gospel with shame because, man, it's really not scientific, is it? You believe the gospel shame to you because you're so intolerant. Shame on you because you are so bigoted. Shame on you because you are so closed-minded. Shame on you because you are so backwards. That is the culture that we are now living in. It's nothing new. It's what Paul went through. It's what Christians around the world currently are going through. It's just new to us. And so we, like Paul, need to be encouraged. We, like Paul, need to be strengthened. And we, like Paul, need to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And why aren't we ashamed of the gospel? Because of what he says. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So we believe that it is not based on on where you are born or what race you are born or what socioeconomic class you are in or what ethnicity you are or who you vote for in November. Your salvation is not on those things, but upon the righteousness that Christ lived out. And it is a trust and a belief in the work of Christ that we then get that righteousness for ourselves. God's righteousness and God's salvation is wrapped up in one so that when we believe in Jesus, we get that righteousness. And that is the gospel that we proclaim and that is the gospel that we are not ashamed of. I've got the easiest job in this room because I get to preach the gospel to people who believe the gospel. Y'all don't have that luxury. Many of you go into jobs and institutions that might want to suppress that, that might put shame on that, that want to embarrass you because of that. And what Paul is saying is, brothers and sisters, be a part of a, of a gospel-loving, Jesus-proclaiming, God-glorifying church where you can be strengthened and encouraged to not be ashamed of the good gift that God 
has given you. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the word. And we thank you, Lord, that you have invited us to be a part of your bride, to be a part of your church. Father, help us not to take that lightly, but help us to be encouragers. Help us, O Lord, to be those that strengthen other people. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel that has saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.